Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come and study your word. We thank for each person that's here and, and those that aren't. We ask you to bless them. Lord, we ask you to guide and lead us as we look at this psalm. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Psalm 143, a psalm of David. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplication. In your faithfulness, answer me, and in your righteousness. And enter not into judgment with your servant, for in your sight shall no living man be justified. For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has smitten my life down to the ground. He has made you to dwell, made me to dwell in darkness as those who have been long dead. Therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is desolate. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your works. I muse on the works of, of your hands. I stretch forth my hands unto you. My soul thirsts after you as a thirsty land. Selah. Hear me speedily, O Lord. My soul fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like unto them that go down into the pit. Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning, for in you do I trust. Cause me to know your way wherein I should walk, for I lift up my soul unto you. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies, and I, I will flee unto you to hide me. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Your spirit is good. Lead me into the land of the uprightness. Quicken me, O Lord, for your name's sake, for your righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. And of your mercy cut off my enemies destroy all them that afflict my soul, for I am your servant. Verse 1, hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplication. In your faithfulness, answer me, and in your righteousness. I just, I, it starts out, David, saying, God, hear me. Be attentive. Listen. And he says to my prayer. And I kind of, for a rare uh, thing, I looked up the definition for prayer in the, Noah Webster, the original Noah Webster's Dictionary, not the current one. And it is a solemn address to God, asking for favor, confessing, or supplication for mercy and forgiveness. That's prayer, addressed to God. And just looking to him, asking for favor. Is that what most of our prayers are, or is it usually strictly with supplications, asking for him for stuff? And for the most part, many of us are always with our hands out, God, give me, give me, give me. And not a whole lot of God forgive me and, and confession and all that, all that stuff that goes along with true prayer. And as we have on the top of our prayer sheet, you know, the, the acronym ACTS, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. And, you know, it's an old, old acronym, and I really think cat, uh, C should be before the A. It should probably be CATS, Confession, Adoration, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. But it really doesn't, you know, matter. It's a the four parts of prayer. Are we adoring God? Are we giving him confession? Are we being thankful? And then we get down to supplication. And supplication is humbly entreating him for our, for our desires. And I love it because it really should be humble entreating. I've heard some people pray and they're almost demanding that God's going to do what they want. Confidence that he knows. There is a confidence that we need when we pray but there's a, there's a very fine edge between presumption and demand and confidence. And we want to be very careful about that. Uh, 
Many times when I was in the Pentecostal movement for a while, a lot of their prayers almost get to be demands. You know, God, we ask you, you know, we, we quote these, and they'll quote the scriptures, and they'll go, and we expect you to do this, and, and it's a very, I think it's a very dangerous thing to start getting that aggressive with God. You can go, God, you said in your word this. We want to be careful that we don't cross that line of presumptuous uh, demand of God. Where that line is, it's a hard, it's a hard, line, to, hard line to figure out. Unfortunately, most of us Baptists get too far the other direction and our prayers kind of go, God, maybe if possibly you might think about <laughs> answering my prayer. And we kind of go way too far the other direction where we're not really asking God for and expecting God to do anything. And somewhere in the center is where our prayers need to be. Not demanding and presumption on, presumptuous on God, but there has to be some expectation that God wants to fill our and answer our prayers. You know, and this is what David's saying, you know, God, hear my prayer. And then he's saying, give ear. <laughs> Be attentive to my supplication. And that supplication is that request. And it comes from the, the old word of going to the king and giving a supplication, a humble request. You went to the king and you, go, you didn't go, king, I demand that you, you help me get uh, retribution for the guy who hurt my business. It's like, King, I would really like you to hear my argument. This guy has really harmed my business. This is how he's done it. I would really like to have restitution made or punishment made, but it's all up to you. And there's that kind of that fine line between how do we approach the king of the universe, you know, with a demand of this is what I expect, or humble adoration and prayer and supplication. He's the God of the universe. And yes, he says we can come before his presence, but we need to be careful how we come before his presence. And like I said, there needs to be confidence. If you're kind of wishy-washy, if you went to the judge or the, the governor and said, this is what I'd like, and you're so wishy-washy that they don't even know what you want, they won't even know how to begin if they wanted to. But if you're demanding to them, their defenses are just like everybody else's. Uh, uh, you're being a little too pushy here. I don't think we're going to you know, listen to you. you probably you're, you're so pushy, you probably deserved whatever happened to you. David does, I think, push the limits of, uh, occasionally on his prayers. He is pretty bold with his prayers. He's fairly demanding. Uh, he's, he says in the second half of this, in your faithfulness, answer me. God, you're faithful. I expect you to answer. And you know, the most important there, thing there is we need to be ready for the answer, whether it's yes, no, or wait. And that's hard. Because when we pray, we all want one answer. We want yes. Okay. When we go to God, we're just like any kid or teenager with their parent. God, I have a request for you, and I expect it to be yes. And if it's a no, you just don't want me to have fun or have what's good for me. And God says, no, I want what's best for you. You just don't know what's best for you. We really have to be ready for the answer that God gives us. Uh, and then in your righteousness, God is going to do what's best for us. When we pray, he will do what's best. Oftentimes, we don't know what's best. And we think, if I get such and such, then it's going to be the best thing for me, and God's going to go, you don't know what it means 10 years from now or 5 years from now. If this happens, you don't know what it means 20 years from now. You don't know what it means in heaven when you didn't go through the test that I wanted you to get rewards for. You know, and God's saying, I know what's best for you in the long run. 
And yet we're, like I say, I love using kids because how many of us remember when we had our kids and are going, you just don't want me to have fun. That's why you always tell me no. And we as Christians tend to do it to God a lot. Now we might not be that bold to say it, but you know, we'll be thinking it. God, you just won't give me what I want and you know, I know what's good for me and you just don't want me to have any fun. I never would have said that to my mother. I would have picked myself up off the middle of the floor. <laughs> yeah, but you thought we thought it. Maybe you didn't say it, yeah. but uh, verse two. And enter not into judgment with your servant, for in your sight shall no living man be justified. This is kind of interesting. David is trying to say, God, deal with me mercifully. Don't walk into judgment with me, because he realizes that if he was judged by, by the justice of God, he would be guilty. And David, more, much more than many people, understood that, because you know, if you remember, even... You know, he had many sins in his life, but when he sinned with Bathsheba with the adultery and then the murder of Uriah, he faced two capital crimes that God did not execute him for, forgave him. He did not want God judging him after the judgments that he deserved. And he kind of understood this. And I don't know if this one was after or before, but he understood God's mercy, merciful action. He goes, God, don't judge me. Don't judge me after what I deserve. And, and then he goes on and it says, for in your sight no living man is justified. We think about this. We, in Christ, have the ability to go before the throne room of heaven and make our request known. For David's time, they had to go out and make sure that they had offered their sacrifices and confessed their sins and, and did all of this before they really felt comfortable approaching God. And David's saying, no man, no living person can stand before you. And he's thinking back probably to Moses on the mountaintop saying, God, I want to see you. And God says, no man shall see me and live. And he puts him in the, but he says, okay, God, Moses, you want it so much, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to cover you, and you'll get to see my back parts. You, you, but you cannot see my face. But you know, I love that story because that's a story of God saying, you really want this, Moses? I'll give you as close as you can get. You can't have, you can't have what you want. But I'll give you the best thing, that, the best, next best thing there. I'll let you see as much of me as you are allowed that, I, that a human can see. Verse 3. For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has smitten my life down to the ground. He has made me to dwell in darkness as those who have been long dead. And here's David with his usual, uh, huh? Crying, that's a good word, crying, <laughs> moaning. You know, they, oh, woe is me, my life is miserable. And this is where so many of his psalms, his song, his, a lot of his psalms start this way. Oh, miserable me, I, everything is all bad. And he ends up worshiping God at the end, just like he does in this one. Uh, and, you know, we, we, I, I kind of make light of this, but this is David's life, and it, does, it is a comfort to those who have the same problems David has. David has very low lows and very high highs. You know, he, when everything's going bad, he gets very low, and every, the whole world is against him. And when he's ecstatic, <laughs> he is on top of the world, and nothing can stop him. And that's what we see in a lot of these psalms. For the enemy has persecuted my soul, has put to flight. That's what the persecution he's talking about. 
his innermost being, his soul, the seat of his emotions, have been put to flight. He's, he's under so much attack. And you know, some of us have been there at various times in our life where we just feel the whole world is against us. There's nothing, nothing good in our life. And that's why some of the Psalms are really good to get into because we watch David make that whole turn around. And David had some good reasons to be persecuted. Before he became the king, he had Saul chasing him all over the place everywhere he went. And then he had Absalom chasing him all over the place. And then he had another event that people were chasing him. You know, he had a lot of times when people just were chasing him and trying to take his life. God Some of it he deserved when, you know, when he treated Absalom the way he did. He kind of ended up deserving to have Absalom rebel against him. Not that it makes Absalom's decision right. Just because his mistreatment of Absalom caused it does not mean Absalom's actions were right, but he did a lot of things to cause these issues. And Absalom got upset because he ignored the rape of his, of his sister. And, you know, and then he kicked him out of the, you know, the, the palace and out of the, out of the city. And, and then when he brought him back, he refused to see him. So it's... It's, it's easy to take Absalom's side in Of course. It doesn't make what Absalom did right. It just means you can understand why Absalom did it. David was not the best father in the world. Matter of fact, he was a pretty poor father with his kids. He was a great king, he was a great leader, military leader of his people, but he was a lousy father. He was never home. Yeah, he was never around to raise his. Plus, he had too many kids. When his baby was born, you know, that he didn't eat or anything until he died. I'm sure he loved all of his, kill, all of his kids. He just did not know how to be a good father to them. You know, when the kid was sick, he knew if I would go before God, there's a chance that God may spare him, even though that's what he told the servant. While he, was, while he was alive, there was a chance that he could be healed. But now he's dead, I've got to go to him. And so there's a lot going on in there. And David, David I'm not saying David didn't love his kids. He was just not a good father. And so he went to God before God to say, you know, don't take this child. I want, <laughs> I want my child, you know. Uh, because how many of us do that very thing whenever we sin and something bad happens to us? Oftentimes, we don't go immediately to confess to God because we feel, I deserve it. I'm getting what I deserve because of my sin. And God is saying, why don't you just confess and get, you know, repent and see what, see what I can do for you. And that's what David was trying to do with his child. Go into confession, go into repentance, and say, God, please spare this child because I'm the one that sinned. And then the other part of his punishment was that he had to choose one of three things to happen to this people on two occasions. And basically, he's saying, God, I don't want anything to happen to my people. Do something to me. And God knew how to punish David better than, than David wanted to be punished. He goes, I'm going to, you know, you need a choice. So many of your people die through a disease or a plague or this, that, and the other thing. And, and David basically said, no, do it to me. And this is something that we want to be very careful of. God knows how to discipline. Yes. Uh, he has smitten down my life or crushed my life down to the ground. He has made me to dwell in darkness. <laughs> Yeah, this is David at the bottom of his, you know, rope, basically. God, I am just feeling crushed. There's no good thing going on. I just feel miserable. My enemy is not just beating me, but crushing me. They've made me dwell in darkness like those that are dead. In other words, he's saying they make me feel like I'm dead or wish that I was dead. You know, that's how bad he's feeling. And I don't think I've ever been to the point where I wished I was dead. <laughs> 
But David had this many a times where he's going, I'm in a black hole, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm like unto the death, like unto the abyss, like unto Sheol. She Frequently he seems to be that far down. And that's what we say. David's lows are extreme. Yeah. Now was he being beat that bad? And, and I don't think so, but he was taking his eyes off God much the way we do so often when things go bad. God, uh, I'm miserable, I'm awful, everything's awful, these people are being mean to me, and we take our eyes off God. And once we take our eyes off God and we look at the problems, the problems start becoming monstrous hills and, and, and very deep valleys. Peter walked on the water, and what's it say? He took his eyes off Jesus and noticed the waves. And as soon as he saw the waves, he goes, uh, I can't walk on water. What am I doing out here? And he started sinking. But you know, we all have an option when we're going through hard time. Keep our eyes on Jesus and walk above the problems that we're dealing with. Or take our eyes off Jesus, put it on the problems, and all of a sudden, the problems become these great big mountains and, and obstacles. And have you ever got to the end of a problem that you thought was so big a problem and you finally gave it up to God and you kind of look back at the problem and going, what was that little molehill that, that I was so afraid of? You know, what, was that, what was that insignificant problem that God just totally wiped out of the, you know, wiped out? And we think about this, it's, it's human nature that when we're, when we're looking at a trial or an obstacle to make it bigger than it really is. Uh, maybe you can think back when you were a, a little kid and you're getting ready to go on the big slide, you know, the one that's, you know, six or eight feet tall or something, you know, and if you think back to it, I have a slide in my mind that I remember being like 25 feet tall, okay? I'm sure if I was to go back to that slide today, I'd probably see a six-foot slide or something, but, you know, when I'm three-foot tall and I'm looking up at this really tall slide, I remember this slide as being some great big monster. And I, we tend to do this all the time in our life. We look at some challenge in our life, and on the side before it's conquered, that thing looks like a huge obstacle. When we get to the other side, and God's given us victory, we look at it and say, ah, that was nothing. This is where David's at. His eyes are off God, and he is just being crushed and, and pushed down. His eyes are off God, and he's just seeing nothing but problems. He's standing in front of the trees, and he can't see the forest because his face, is, his nose is on the tree in front of him. Okay? And he's not seeing the way out, and God's saying, just take a step back, and I'm going to show you the path around the tree, and I'll guide you through the forest. And that's kind of where he's at with this. All these different little things we could say. Verse 4, therefore my spirit... Therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within me. My heart is desolate. He's saying my, soul, my spirit is faint and my heart, the very essence of who I am, is desolate, appalled, stunned. Yeah, this, is, this is depression. David is in depression at this point. Whatever's going on in his life, he is in a very depressed state. And I don't know if this is when Saul was chasing him, Absalom was chasing him, or what was going on. But he is feeling the attack. And you know, we, I kind of make light of him looking at, looking at things, like looking at the dark side. But David went through some things that most of us have never had to go. 
Most of us have never had somebody chasing us with the intent of killing us. Okay, maybe we've had some people getting mad at us, wanting to give us a hard time, but I don't think any of us have had the, anybody chasing after us with the intent of killing us and chasing us no matter what. He was still a little boy when he killed Goliath, wasn't he? He says he was young. I don't know how young young was. He was too young to be drafted by the military when they called and his brothers went. So he was a young youth probably. Well, what that means in their day and age, I don't know because we talked about it this morning. You know, at age 13, you were considered an adult in the Jewish, the Jewish uh, things. Now, that didn't mean necessarily that you would be joining the army and all of that stuff, but you could be tried as an adult. You were expected to act like an adult. You were expected to apprentice in some shop and learn, learn a trade. So David probably was in that 13 to 16, 17-year-old bracket where he was learning to do things other than just being a shepherd. But he was young. And so we don't know when this exact period was. All we know is that he's having trouble with his life right now. He had that kind of trouble from the time he was a kid, almost entangled through his whole life, just about. When did he ever really have a time of peace? When he first, got, first left the battle after Goliath, he was, went back home, and then he was called by Saul to be the one to play the instruments. And we don't know what that time period was. Saul chased him for his life, basically, Saul's virtual entire life, you know, the 30 years that he, he reigned. And David had periods of time when he was at peace, or at war, but he was at peace, he was at internal peace. Uh, now, he was a warrior, and he was a great warrior, but this isn't, the warrior isn't the one that's depressed by what's going on. The warrior went out with an army and was leading the army, and even during, even during Saul's reign, he was generally the leader of many of the companies that would go out. Because remember, after one particular battle that really set Saul off was, you know, they, the women were saying, Saul is slain his thousands and David is ten thousands because David had a division or a company or whatever it was that he had and he was being very victorious. And Saul got jealous of him. You know, he's going out and winning battles. And various times, you know, that he went out. Uh, uh, Jonathan, at one time when David was worried about losing his life again, Jonathan was saying, hey, if you're not here, my father's going to miss you. And sure enough, his father missed him. Where's, where is David? You know, he's back coming. He asked for permission to go home. And then Saul threw a javelin at, so, at Jonathan. But uh, Saul had some problems. In many times, David was not totally being chased with, by Saul. After the cave of Adullam, okay, that's where he had the opportunity to kill Saul as he was relieving himself. The scripture says, and Saul quit chasing David. Okay, there was a point where Saul quit chasing him because he realized, okay, he could have killed me. I was defenseless. I was defenseless in this cave. He could have easily killed me. And that's when he said, you're more righteous than I am. That's when David, and for a period of time, even in Saul's life, he had somewhat peace. Now, he's, not, he's living in the wrong place. He's not living in Israel. He's not living under the king. He's not living where he can go to the temple. But he has external peace anyway. Then, after he became king, he really didn't have too many problems until Absalom, the issues with Absalom came along and caused him problems and made him run. Then he had that time when he counted the people and God says, okay, what's your punishment going to be? 
okay? So there's a couple times when he was running, but there were also parts of his life. Again, we've come to this place where I keep saying, be careful how we look at the scriptures because there's not a lot of time markers sometimes. We read these things and go, well, this happened, and then two chapters later, he's running again, and then two chapters later, he's running again. There's lots of time in between when it was just normal, everyday life. Get up in the morning, go, go to the throne, judge cases, make decisions on where my ambassadors are going, make treaties, go to bed. Get up the next day, judge the, judge the people. You know, there were many days where it was just that, and they're not recorded in the Bible. Saul lost his throne because he didn't kill the Amalekites completely. And he offered a sacrifice on his own without, without the priest being nowhere to do it. So I mean, he had two problems in there. He, he gave the sacrifice and he didn't follow, obey God. And, and he wasn't repentant because he says, I've done all that God has told me to do. And Samuel goes, well, what is the bleeding of the sheep that I hear? Oh, the people kept the best of the flock so they could offer to God. Okay, why is the king still here? Well, I, 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 I spared his life. And, and that's when Saul, Samuel told him, this day you've lost the kingdom and killed, killed the king. Oh, it's all the stuff that we would do. Everything in the Bible on these people's lives are exactly what we would do. All these things are what we do in our own life. And that's why I try to bring this out so often. We look at these things and go, well, that was them. No, it's us. And when we read these characters in the Bible, we want to be careful that we're not just reading them as if they're some strangers to us because if we're, if we're really honest, we do the same things. When times get tough, we'll be like Job, either griping or complaining, or we'll start out with, God, I'm going to trust you, and then, then we have our friends give us counsel and make us miserable. It seems that the Bible is full of the human condition. Of course it is. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there is no temptation overtaken you, but such it is common to man. And God shows us all through Scripture that everything that we face has happened before. Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. Uh, we get into the story of Esther, and we see that court intrigue that's going on behind the scenes. We, we get through the books of Kings and Chronicles, and we see different pictures of the court intrigue that goes on. Uh, David in, in 2 Samuel, we see that court intrigue is, as Absalom rebels against him, and, and people are taking sides on who's going to side up with who. You know, politics have not changed in forever. They've always been the same. People take their eyes off God and look on, look on their problems just as we do. People repent and get forgiven just as we do in the, in the Bible. And, you know, so yes, everything in the Bible is extremely real to life. Uh, and but this is why I keep telling this. The thing it doesn't tell us about in any of their stories is all the days when they just live the way we do. Get up in the morning, go about your business, and go to bed that next night. Get up the next morning, go about your business, and, and go to bed. And do this for about a year or two, and all of a sudden, get up one morning, God steps into your life and has a big change in your life, and then you don't think about God, you, know, you don't think of God doing things in your life for another year or two. And sometimes it's a little more exciting, but you know, this is the way it is. We read Abraham's life and think, boy, what a, light, what a f busy life Abraham had. Well, in, in his 60 years of life that is reported, we have like eight stories. Eight stories in 60 <laughs> years. 
okay? Paul in the book, for the book of Acts. The book of Acts covers almost 35 years of time and we can read Acts in, in a day, two days, if you're really trying to absorb everything in it. And it's like, okay, he went to this town, 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 he went to this town. And we're reading Acts, and it's like, boy, Paul really lived an exciting life. And then we read his letters, and it says, I went to this town, and I spent three years there. I went to this town, and I spent three years. And you look in the book of Acts and go, oh, I thought all he did was, was go against the temple of Diane and then got thrown out of town, you know. Uh, you know, because we look at what he did and it's like, here's one or two events in this city, one or two events in this city. And then we read his epistles and say, oh, wow, you spent three years here, five years here, you know, uh, time here. We need to be careful when we look at the stories in the Bible to realize there are a lot of times when all they're doing is living life, just like us. Because a lot of times we'll say things like, well, my life isn't as exciting as David's or Saul's or, or Paul's or these guys. We probably wouldn't want it to be as exciting as theirs. But we look at this and say, there's a lot of time that's not given. Where all they did was live their daily life, do business, just like we do. And then God steps in and, and does a divine moment with them and gets them to do other things. So we want to look at this as that part of it. Uh, verse 5. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your works. I muse on the work of your hands. Here's David starting to turn that corner. Okay. I'm miserable. Everything is bad. My enemies are crushing me. And then I remember. I recall. I think about the old days. <laughs> You know, these old days, I don't know how far these old days were, whether it's a day, a month, a, a week, a, a year, who knows. But, you know, we do the same thing. God, I remember when you used to bless me. It was only last week, but you used to bless me, and now I haven't had a blessing in a whole week. Uh, and we get depressed. God, I haven't heard from you. I haven't, I haven't been blessed, and it's been 24 hours, and you haven't done anything for me. Recall. <laughs> Recall what he's done in the past. But we look at this and say, and this is why I share with us, we need to mark down in a journal or a computer profile someplace, what has God done for you? So that when you get down in these places where it doesn't seem like God's doing anything in your life, you open up this journal and says, in 1992, he did this. In 1998, he did this. In 2008, he did this. In 2012, he did this. Oh, you know what, God? You haven't totally abandoned me. That's why I say one of my favorite hymns is Count Your Blessings. Name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Because when we get focused on our problems, we forget the blessings of God. And God is blessing every day. What a blessing it is to wake up in the morning. Now, some of us sometimes when the weather's changing don't feel it's a very big blessing to get up in the morning when our bones are creaking and we're telling and our joints are all sore. And you know, it's like, God, why didn't you take me home? I don't, I don't like this pain. But you know, it is a blessing that he's given us another day to reach out to somebody. We don't see the blessings of God unless we're looking for them. And uh, sometimes we have to make steps to make those blessings happen. And one of my favorite stories from George Mueller is the day he's got breakfast with the kids and the staff is telling them, we have no food. 
All the kids are sitting in the dining room waiting for food and he goes out and he starts giving thanks for the food they're about to eat. And the staff are like telling him, you didn't understand, there is no food. He goes, God's going to provide. How much of us would have that much faith to walk out and just start thanking God for the food that we're going to eat that is not there? And he's in the middle of the prayer and somebody knocks on the door and says, you know, hey, I've got my milk truck broke out here. Can you guys, use, can you use my milk? Because otherwise I have to dump it out in the street. Yeah, it was a full card, you know. And then, okay, good, they're getting the milk that passed out. And then the baker comes down and knocks on the door and he goes, I don't know why, but I just had, feel like God told me to make, you know, all these loaves of bread and bring them to you. The kids had milk and bread for, for breakfast. Was it the best breakfast they probably ever had? No, but you know, what if he had, what if George Mueller had said, oh, I don't know what we're going to do. God, uh, there's no food here. Kids all go back to your classes and your dorms. Uh, and we you know, don't know what's going to happen. Probably would have never saw the miracles that fed them. Yeah. What faith? He could have just said, okay, there's no food. Let's go, you know, send them all back to their dorms and their, and their classes. And we'll go, in the, we'll go in and figure out how we're going to pay for some breakfast, you know, a bigger brunch. And then there would have been no record recorded of the miracle of the milk and the butter, uh, the milk and the, and the bread being delivered to him. This was his life. But, but you understand what I'm saying. Sometimes we don't see the blessings because we're so focused on what we don't have that we don't focus on what God has blessed. And George Mueller would just look at it and say, God, you have given me everything I wanted, everything I've needed. How did he learn these prayers? If anybody's read the book, you know, his very first prayer when he was learning to pray is, God, my father has cut me off. I want to stay in seminary. And I have no money. I need a job. And no sooner had he prayed that prayer when somebody's knocking at the door and said, we understand that you speak English and we would like to be taught how to speak German. Uh, you know, can you give me, can you give us lessons? And he goes, well, you know, I need more work than just one. He goes, no, you don't understand me. We've got four or five people who want to be taught in a class and we will all pay you as if you were teaching us individually. What an answer to his first prayer of faith. And he just learned over the years that God is faithful. Do we have that same thing that we go, God, you are faithful. Where have we learned? What has God taught us that we have grown in? And this is something each one of us have some area that God has taught us for his child and taught us very well. And the problem is sometimes we might be judgmental of other people who haven't grown in that area. You know, I've learned how to be forgiving. Why haven't you learned how to be forgiving? I know how to be loving. Why can't you be loving? You know, I know how to pray the prayer of faith that God's going to bless me. Why can't you? Of course, they're looking at you saying the same thing back to you with <laughs> wherever they're strong. You know, which is why we've got to be careful when we look at one another because every one of us has strengths and weaknesses that God has given us. You know, I'm sure in our church we've got people like George Mueller who know that their prayers are going to be answered when they pray. And they have no problem praying. We've got some people that are just so loving and kind that they're going to love people no matter what. We've got people who are forgiving that can forgive. We need each other to be the body of Christ because it, God's not going to say, okay, we're just going to give you all prayer warriors. Nobody's going to love anybody, but we're going to give you all prayer warriors. We're not going to give anybody who can evangelize, but you've got lots of prayer warriors. When you pray, you're going to get answers. And we need 
all the various parts of the body to be able to do this. We need those people who, who are just so loving that when they see a need, they want to give. They have to be balanced out by the people who are a little more practical that won't give away the church because of the person who just wants to give everything away. You know, but that person who just wants to keep everything needs the loving person to say, we need to give. <laughs> Okay, we need the prayer warrior who is, God will give us all of, our, all of our needs and they need to be counterbalanced by the person who's practical and says, okay, yeah, I agree with you, but we do have to make some plans and, and do the right things with what we have. We need one another. We need the balances that come along. We need the evangelist who can teach and bring people, but then we need the teachers who can disciple and, and train those people after they come into the church. We need each other and we need the strengths and weaknesses of each other. And this is something we've got to be able to understand. Everybody brings strengths and weaknesses to the church. We need to love their weakness and encourage their strength. Love them in their weakness. Encourage them. And don't let them get too proud of their strength either. <laughs> and we don't want to be too proud of our strengths because we've got, all got plenty of weaknesses. All of us have plenty of weaknesses and plenty of sins. And so... But the, the key is, it, what is my strength? God, how can I work for you through the strength you've given me? And we need each other. We need each other. We need each other's strengths. You know, we, you know, somebody like me who can't nail two pieces of wood together is not the person who's going to be in the maintenance department of the church. <laughs> you know, I can teach people and I can encourage people, but don't ask me to try to nail the two pieces of wood together. Uh, but you know, we need those people. But we need those people who are maintenance people that can say, "I can fix this." And but people who love it, people who love that kind of thing, people who can reach out and say, "You've got a, you've got a need. Let me try to find a way to help you." We need each other. And David is saying, "I remember the days of old. I recall." Uh, he goes, "I meditate on all your works." And meditation is that whole idea of just musing over something over and over and over again. It's what we're asked to do when we get into the Word. We read His Word early in the morning and then we think about the Word all day long. And you know, if you've ever done that, it's so wonderful. You, you get something and you just start thinking about it. And just you start thinking about it. And by the end of the day, maybe God oftentimes has given you just some special understanding of that Word, that verse. I try to read the verses, the chapters ahead that I'm going to teach and go, God, what is it that you want me to teach on this? What is it? And it might be some pastor on the radio that gives me an idea. It might be just kind of musing on it and all of a sudden saying, oh, oh wow, that's, what, that's what's needed. And sometimes it's not until I get speaking that God gives me what I'm going to say. But, you know, we muse upon it. We meditate on it. It says, my heart. And I muse on the works of your hands. God, I think about all that you have done. I remember your works. I, I think about you. I think about what you have done with your hands. You know, that is what changes us when we start remembering what God has done. And we start looking and going, God, I just can't wait to see what you're going to do this time. I am, God, I'm just so excited. You haven't taken away my problem, but I am excited to see what you are going to do. I hope you've been there. I've been there so many times. Uh, God, I just can't wait to see what you're going to do. When my car broke down in Tucson, when I did the new pastor thing, it's like, you know, God, I don't know how you're getting me home, but I'm going to be excited when you show me how I'm getting home. And that was one of the times when I did everything right. I didn't get depressed. I didn't, didn't, you know, there's been many times when I've gotten depressed and worried and done things on my own that I've regretted later on. 
But that was one of those times when I did it right. I had everybody worried about it. How are you going to get home? Huh? I go, I don't know. That's God's problem. He's got three days to figure that out. <laughs> and sure enough, on the last day, it's like, why don't you call this person? He's got a flatbed. Like, oh, I'll call this person. <laughs> See if he'll come down and pick me up. I'll give him, I'll give him gas money to pick me and my, car, uh, my wife and my car up. And he came down and then didn't let me pay him for, for coming down. When we just focus on God and say, God, I just can't wait to see what you are going to do. What you are going to do. Doesn't mean we don't make plans for our life. It doesn't mean that we just say, okay, God, when you, when you dump the idea on my head, I'm going to accept it. But we don't panic and worry about where we're going. We let God direct. And this is what David's at. He's going, God, I, I've been trying to do this on my own, and I'm miserable. My enemies are coming against me. And, you know, this is true of us all the time. When we do things on our own, in our flesh, we're going to feel miserable because God's not going to let our flesh be exalted before him. He doesn't. If you're trying to do it in your own strength, he will smack you down a few times and say, okay, when are you done, done with your flesh? When are you going to depend on me? That's what David's starting at, in his flesh. Enemy, 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 enemies. Oh, God, I'm thinking about you now. I'm thinking about you and how wonderful it is the things you have done for me. And this is when things really work out for us, is when we remember his gifts, his works. That's the hardest lesson I learned, I think. The hardest lesson we keep learning and learning. And this is the problem that all of us have because the flesh wants to be exalted. God, look at me, whatever it might be. I pray and my prayers get answered. I, I am a great teacher. I am an evangelist. I am this. I am that. You know, look at, look at what I do. And God says, okay, let's see what you can do without me. And he, and he lets us fall flat on our face. Let's us fall flat on our face. And if we keep trying to do it our way, he keeps letting us fall flat on our face. And some of us are hard-headed. It might take us years to learn. Some of us learn really quick. And <laughs> say, good God, I give up. But usually we've learned the hard way, really bad the hard way, and we've taken years to learn something and that softens us up for the future. And, God, and we get to the place where God just, I want to surrender. That was what David did when, the, when, his, when his baby was, was sick. God, if I can please repent enough that, you won't, that you'll spare this child. And then he says, okay, I can't. God's going God's to fulfill his word. God, please don't give me the punishment that I deserve. And yet, oftentimes, we get the punishment we deserve. Not the death of hell that we deserve, because God says, that is, if you're his child, that's forgiven. But the consequences in this world are most often experienced. If we sin, there's consequences. And it's, there's always consequences. People who want to sleep around and commit fornication will usually end up with STDs or, or pregnancies and everything that they don't want to have to deal with. There's consequences for their actions. And God says, there's going to be consequences. And we need to understand this. Usually when we get ready to sin, we kind of think it through and we go, God, well, I think this, this, or this might happen, and I can handle that. I can handle those consequences. And God says, well, yeah, you didn't count all the consequences. I've got consequences you didn't even think about. God, I think I'm going to go out and get drunk tomorrow. I can handle a hangover. And on your way home, you wrap your car around the tree, or worse yet, around somebody. And you end up in prison because, because of your consequences you thought you could handle. 
you know, oftentimes always the consequences seem to be worse than anything we think of and think that we can handle because if we really understood the consequences, we wouldn't do it. You know, people who overeat, you know, if, 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 their, if their food immediately jumped to their thighs and their belly, they would stop overeating pretty quick. You know, can you picture this? I'm eating, my, I'm eating my eighth donut, and all of a sudden the donuts start popping out on your, on your thighs. You know, your fat all of a sudden pops out on your thighs as you're eating the donut. You would stop eating that overeating really quick. But that's not the way we look at it. We go, I can handle this. I'll go, I'll go exercise this stuff off you know, in a few hours. Uh, it turns out to be not done. And you end up getting fatter and fatter as you overeat. I can, I can handle the consequences as your heart goes into heart attack mode and, and stroke mode and your, and your diabetes kicks in and all these other things kick in because of how you've abused your body through, through eating. God, I can handle this. It's no big deal. God, you know, we do that often. You know, not counting the real cost because we don't know the real cost. We think we can handle the cost and we don't, because if we really understood the cost of most of the sin, we would give it up quickly. We would not commit most of the sins that we commit if we really, really counted and understood the cost that God knows. All right, Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. Lord, help us to always look at you. Teach us to look at you and follow you and, and be able to live the way you want us to live and be able to listen to your voice and to look at you in all that we do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.